Reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, the fifth chapter, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul says, We also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The fifth through the fourteenth chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans will provide our summer lectionary readings for the next several weeks. I will use them mostly for those months although one never knows from week to week whether I might alter my path just a bit along the way, but that's, that's the plan. When we think about the history of the Church of Jesus Christ, Jesus established the Church. Jesus is the head of the Church. Jesus is the one who began the Church. The Holy Spirit empowers the Church. And Paul, St. Paul, Apostle Paul, is often seen as the systematizer or the organizer or the theological uh, structure that uh, became a part of the church early in those years. I'm going to say more about the Roman cultural context in the weeks to come. I'm not going to say that much about it today because I want to jump right into the assigned readings and texts because I think they say something very important about our particular situation, the time in which we are living. The Bible and passages from the Bible are regularly and often misused in spite of the value that they hold. And many of Paul's passages are thus misused, like this one. So I want to spend a little time digging more deeply into it and imagine not only what Paul is trying to say, but also how it informs our life and our actions as the Church of Jesus Christ today 
in this place. The Christians in Rome, Rome, the, cult, the, the capital city of the empire, uh, the Christians in Rome were seeking to as, exist in a highly complex political, social, theological, and economic context. Highly, highly complex. Any other highly complex kinds of situations come to mind today? I don't think it's too tough to see the connection. The church in Rome, the Christian church in Rome, was made up of a diverse group of people. Kind of an odd gathering, if you really think about it. There were the Jewish Christians. Jesus and all of the disciples, of course, were Jewish. The Christian church started, started from that Jewish base. But in Rome, there were also Gentiles. In many ways, the Jewish folks and the Gentiles, previous to Jesus' teachings and Paul's teachings, didn't have anything to do with one another. They were really us and them. But here in Rome, they band together to exist in what is really quite a foreign culture for them. The early Christians, in this case it was the same situations, early Christians in the Roman Empire were seen as atheists, as non-believers, because they persisted in their belief in one God. They had a monotheistic understanding of who God is, not like the Romans who had a whole a multitude of gods. Those of you who have studied ancient culture know that quite well, and they inform us in our times today. But they were seen as atheists because they only believed in one God. So in Rome, you could say that the Christians were not acting like Romans. Do in, when in Rome, do as Romans do? No, we are not going to believe in the same way that the Romans believed. So it was clear that they were perceived as being different. And their different, differentness led to sufferings of various sorts. We look back at the Roman culture and think that it was the beginning of democracy and all of that stuff and going back to the Greeks and, and, and all, a lot of that is true, but it certainly was not like our modern culture. Some of the sufferings that the Christians and others endured were brutal and severe. Wasn't Jesus put to death by the Roman authorities? And we believe that probably Peter and Paul too suffered execution at their hands? That's brutal and severe. Some of it was just plain old annoying, like the burdensome taxes that were a part of their regular existence. But the cloud of dissipation, uh, the, the cloud of oppression never really dissipates over the Christian church in Rome. It's always there. There's always a cloud of suffering, whatever that suffering might be called. Paul was a preacher. And a preacher, another word for a preacher, is an exhorter or an encourager. So Paul wants to speak to this church in Rome, which he had not yet visited, but hoped to do in some future time. Paul 
exhorts them and encourages them to make that suffering useful in some way. Preachers, Paul among them, often succumb to hyperbole, making situations and words and expressions much greater than they might normally be. And I think Paul is expressing himself in a hyperbolic fashion here. He talks about boasting. We also boast in our sufferings. It's a little over the top, Paul, I think. I think I understand what you're trying to say, but, but it's a little over the top. And it's one of those places where Paul is then sometimes misunderstood. Well, we need, to, we need to seek out suffering so that we can boast in it and overcome it and all of that. I'm not in that camp. I'm more in the camp, and I, I think if you read other parts of Paul, I'm not too far away from what he's thinking. Like it or not, Paul says, suffering exists. It even kills people. We don't want it. We don't like it. We don't need it. It is not a gift to make us strong or anything like that. But Paul says the reality of it existing gives us an opportunity to say, how can we use it and grow through it. How can Christians transcend the experience of trying to follow Jesus in Rome when trying that very thing is what leads to suffering? Paul is calling Christians to overcome, to be victorious, because Paul believes that every time we overcome, we grow. Paul is a very logical kind of person. And he writes this passage in a very logical kind of way. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Just like this is always the way it goes, except that it's not. It's not a logical progression. It is much more unpredictable than that. Quite often, exactly the opposite. Paul's passage, as much as he wants to exhort and encourage the church in Rome, it is not a cheery passage because it recognizes the suffering. And in that suffering, many die. And many never manage to get to the hope that Paul holds out at the end of that process. And a lot of times, almost all of the times that we learn lessons from experiences like Paul is outlining here, we learn them from hindsight. We've survived. And now we look back and we try to make sense out of them. So it's not just a cheery, logical progression that Paul encourages us to follow but rather something much more substantial and difficult than that. Sticking with it and living through it and learning from our sufferings. So what does this have to say about our world today? 
I don't think it's too tough for us to imagine and understand how we, we, us, and our world, and especially our sisters and brothers of color, are suffering these days. We are all at varying points along the spectrum that I call annoying suffering to deadly suffering. We are at different points along that way. Ever since we've been struggling with this awful virus, all of our lives have been disrupted in one way or another. My personal family life has has suffered through many, many disruptions. And they've been challenging, and they've been ornery, and they've not been pleasant at all. And my family is no different from yours, that's for sure. But my family's disruptions and sufferings do not in any way, shape, or form equal the sufferings of the family of George Floyd. Not at all. And I fully acknowledge, you can see very clearly, that I need fully to acknowledge my position of privilege in our society today. I realize that. My sufferings do not equal the sufferings of others. Paul reminds us, however, in other places that when one suffers, especially within the body of Christ, when one suffers, all suffer. And I think we've all experienced that in one way. We have a whole list of names who've, of, of people who have died and whose families are suffering to this day. Ahmad and Brianna and George and now Rayshard and Malcolm and Robert, two young men who recently were found hung in trees. Their families are suffering, are suffering beyond our ability from our position of privilege to understand. And I have come to understand in my life that rage appropriately follows suffering upon suffering upon suffering. And rage by itself quite often leads to more suffering as it has again for all of us. Suffering in which we all are participating. I would like to make a statement about those of us who are in positions of privilege that it is our duty to suffer with others as best we can. It would take way more than one sermon and 20 minutes or whatever to flesh that out, and I hope that in the weeks to come, we will have an opportunity to talk more about that. Isn't that, after all, the point of Jesus' coming to the earth? Doesn't Paul say that wonderfully in Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus gave up, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself of all of those God-heavenly things and came to earth to share our lives, suffering to the point of death. And Paul says, be like Jesus. So it is our duty 
to figure out what it means for us now in this time to suffer with others as best we can, recognizing that we will never reach the fullness or the depth of the suffering of others. The church is called to follow what we call the first responder instinct. When there is danger and trouble and turmoil, the human response, the fight or flight response is mostly flee, get away, run away, leave it. And first responders, what do they do? They run toward it. In many ways, the church needs to be a first responder in this time where we need to run toward suffering, not away from it, to figure out how we can support those who are suffering and accompany them and learn from them and address the rampant systemic racism that is in our society. It is a duty that we take on with great fear and trepidation because it is fraught with pitfalls and missteps and failures and attempts in the past to do just that and to see how miserably we've failed. We Presbyterians, we're privileged people. We are. We need to admit that. And we have an instinct that has been a part of who we are since we've been a people. And, and the instinct is to act quickly and to fix whatever problem, challenge, trial we might find in our way. But we want to fix it our way. And we've done a lot of good fixing over the course of time. But now it's not the right step to fix it our way. Rather, it is more important for us now to shut our mouths and open our ears and put our beings in places where we can learn from others. We need to show up in unexpected places as Third Church in Rochester. One of my personally favorite experiences when I go to new communities, as I have done, is I like to walk and run and bike everywhere I can reasonably uh, get to. And sometimes I'll tell church members, hey, I was over walking in such and such a neighborhood, and they go, what? You went there? Well, yeah, it was fine. I, I greeted people, I enjoyed people, I learned something about their neighborhood. And I realize that I can do that, and some people can't. But that's one of the things that I love to do. And it's one of the things that I'm going to press Third Church to do. Where, figuratively, should Third Church walk and run and bike and engage folks in this city? Where, where are we being called to show up in these weeks and months to come? We like our Presbyterian ways of fixing things because we're accustomed to them, and they seem, they seem to work for us. And because we have practice in those areas, they're easy, relatively. And this is not an easy time, and our easy fixes, our tried and true fixes, most likely are not going to work, and there is no easier way to do what we are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ in this time. 
I expect Third Church to build on its long history of community action. And the first step that I'm going to continue to prod, because many of you are already doing this, is to understand, to understand the sufferings of others, not through our lens, but through their lenses. We are already asking as staff and as committees and leaders in this church how that will happen. Our outreach committee is already taking a lead in those efforts. And I invite you to stay tuned as we flesh out our response to this challenge and this time of suffering in our city and our community. And even before that, even before we ask what the church can do, there's another question that we need to ask, another person that we need to look at. Each of us, each of us needs to take an honest, probing look inward and ask the old question, am I a part of the problem or am I a part of the solution? I'd like to suggest that at this time in our society, there is no in-between. Well, it doesn't really impact me, and I'm not really, I'm not really a part of the problem, and I really don't need... At this point in our time together as human beings on the face of the earth, in this community, there is no in-between. We are either part of the problem or we're a part of the solution. So I personally have to ask myself, and I invite you to ask yourself the same question. How can I, how can I be more like Jesus in suffering? Sharing pothole-strewn, detour-encumbered paths of hope toward a better day and a better world. How can I do that? How can you do that? There was a time, I've been at this now for, for a long time, and I, I was kind of growing up in the 60s. I remember the 60s a little bit. I turned 16 in 1970. And, and we can affirm that we've made, in many ways, some gigantic strides in our society and in some ways, none at all. We ain't there yet, but engaging the reality of the situation and being willing to put ourselves directly in it, it's the way, and there is no easier way. So as I was thinking about this, I thought about a, a 60s song, 60s and 70s songs were, in my humble opinion, the best music of my time, my life, and it kind of reminds me of a song from the 60s. The, so the subject of the song has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but I think you will see that the theme line or the ending line is. It ends like this. Are you ready, Boots? Start walking. Start walking. Thanks be to God for this teaching from his holy word. Amen.